0: but on they've everything. become really
1: because pod- I've only just recently discovered podcasts and they're brilliant yeah. download a whole stack driving across <laughs> the country for five days just just <laughs> listen to podcasts
0: welcome back you're listening to In Situ Science for each episode we meet a different scientist and hear their stories about the discoveries they make I'm your host James O'Hanlon and this episode I'm joined by mammologist physiologist and crazy nomad by the signs of it, Dr. Christine Cooper. Christine, thanks for coming on.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: Now, you're visiting the University of New England at the moment, all the way from your host institution, which is Curtin University, over in Perth, and you decided it was a good idea to drive here. (laughs) (laughs) What compelled you to do this? <laughs> How long did it take you, first of all?
1: Um, we took about five days to yeah. drive across. So we don't drive at night because there's animals and on the road. So you know, just solid daytime driving. Yeah. Um, we got a camper on the back of the ute and we just piled all our equipment in and, and drove over.
0: <laughs> <laughs> so it's that's a long way to go. To do some lab work, right?
1: We we have a project. We want to look at um, environmental effects on some physiological variables. So we want to come somewhere with um, a mesic climate to catch some mesic animals. Mm. Um, And having lived in Amadal in the past, I know how cold it gets. So it was a really good place to work on mesic species.
0: Okay. And so how did you how did you survive that long like drive? Well, actually, no. This sounds pretty normal for you from our past conversations. Yeah, we actually... You're a traveller.
1: We go to physiology. There's a physiology conference every year um, mm. that's held somewhere in Australia. And so we usually try and drive across to that early December each mm. year. So it gives us a, a breakaway.
0: So um, is, is this travel, though, or is this
1: work? Well, we usually take leave for the travel bit, yeah. and we work when we're at the conference.
0: Because mm-hmm. <laughs> part of being a scientist is... Going all over the place, yes. doing your field work and going to conferences and things. How often do you travel just for the sheer joy of it? Is there a line that you draw?
1: <sighs> That's really tricky. Um, I actually went on my first overseas non-work trip earlier this year. Um, mm-hmm. So most of my overseas travel has been for work mm. um, and travel in Australia is been a mix of both so I travel a lot for work but also I took long service leave a couple of years ago and drove around central and northern Australia for Mm. three months so it it varies but yeah traveling is a bit of both
0: yeah how was that having a non-work travel
1: um it was amazing i actually thought i would go crazy (laughs) three and a half months um but we did pretty much no work for three and a half months other than a couple of papers that were already in process Mm. um and the trick is is to go to places where you have no phone coverage and no internet so camping in the middle of nowhere yeah um is is a really good way to really get away and force yourself to get away from
0: it yeah i realized that i did that a while ago i realized that all of my travel had been Even if it was a holiday, it was tacked on to before a conference or after a conference or the end of a field trip or something. And it's a big difference because you're always thinking about the presentation you have to make or data you did or didn't get on the field trip and things. Is it easy to switch off? It is if you fill
1: your days. I mean, the trouble is, if obviously, if you're lucky enough to work in the field that you're really interested in. You know, when I go on holiday, I spend my time looking at animal tracks and bird mm-hmm. watching and looking at scats and doing those sorts of things that zoologists do. So in that way, no, you don't switch off, but you're not doing it you know, for any serious purpose. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yes, you're sort of still doing the same sorts of things, but now you're, you're doing it for fun. And if you fill your days, yeah. um, you know, we would just be busy all day, go to bed with the sun, get up with the sun <laughs> and so camping you know just does that you just get away from it all and yeah, yeah you're still looking at birds and animals and wildlife because that's what you're interested in but.
0: yeah I think the whole long distance travel I think mean, it's very Australian too isn't it your perception of distance it's very yes. skewed.
1: Yes, we live in Perth, which is a long way from anywhere. Mm. It's three days' drive to Adelaide. <laughs> Two days <laughs> we you really push it. Um, so, yeah, so our idea of distance and where you yeah. might go, um, I'm always amazed how close everything is over here. We just had to pop up to UQ in mm. Brisbane for a seminar, and so we just drove up. <laughs> and everyone's like, you drove up here? So like, well, yes. It's only just five hours.
0: How like good was the seminar?
1: oh we were giving the seminar okay
0: <laughs> oh okay that makes a lot more sense you're just going to see someone <laughs> yes in fact
1: that was one of the things I asked when I came over here as a postdoc at my job interview I was like oh do people from UNE go, go up to Brisbane to go to seminars and go down to Sydney for seminars and everyone looked at me like I was crazy but <laughs> you know, to me that just seems one of the real advantages of being on the east coast is that everything is so like, relatively close and yeah. you can have those opportunities yeah
0: so what brings you to Armidale this time
1: so, we're trying to measure some species from Music Habitats for an ARC funded project that we have going um, looking at water loss regulation of mammals and birds. So, mm-hmm. we've come over here um, working with Fritz Geiser, who has a really good setup for doing this sort of work. We brought some of our equipment over um, and invaded his lab. He's mm-hmm. always very generous in having us come to stay. Um, and we're doing some measurements while we're over here. Right,
0: so, water loss. Is this just dehydration? What are we talking about? We're looking here? at
1: evaporative water loss. So the mm-hmm. water that an animal loses across its skin surface and across its respiratory um, surface. Mm-hmm. And we're interested in how mammals and birds might be able to regulate this loss because passive water loss has been just thought to be a physically driven Mm. Phenomenon, But we've got some data that suggests that animals might be able to regulate this water loss. So one of the immediate questions is why might they be doing this? So Mm. if we can look at some arid adapted species and some mesic adapted species and see if there's differences in how they might regulate this water loss, that might give us a clue as to why they're doing that.
0: We're not just talking sweating here. This is just...
1: Yeah. What do you call
0: it, skin respiration? Yeah, we're,
1: looked at, we're looking at the insensible side. So people really understand that the increased water loss, like sweating, panting that mm. animals do when they're really hot to uh, reduce their body temperature, is really well regulated, and we understand that. But there's the other passive water loss that's just an inevitable consequence of being permeable. Mm. So your skin is permeable to water, your lungs are obviously permeable to water. So you are going to lose some water just passively. Mm. Um, and that's always just been thought to be this passive physical process. Um, but, as I said, we recently found that it looks like it may be regulated as well, so that's what we're, we're really working on at the so moment. How,
0: how would an animal regulate this? <laughs> That's a really
1: good question. <laughs> so we haven't really gotten to the mechanistic experiments yet, but mm-hmm. the, the two sort of obvious pathways is to regulate expired air temperature. So we know that animals can reduce expired air temperature below body temperature. So if they can change that expired okay. air temperature, they can potentially change the amount of water vapour that's in that air. Yeah. And the other way they may be regulating it is changing some something to do with their skin resistance, so lipids in the skin, which mm. we know they can do over periods of weeks to months, but this is an acute change. It's over hours, so we yeah. don't know yet whether they can change their skin resistance over a period of hours.
0: So I guess animals are losing water essentially because of the the difference between their internal conditions and external things so this is just driven by thermodynamics really is that right yeah yeah, yeah.
1: so the animal has a certain water vapor pressure mm. determined by its body temperature, and we assume it's saturated at that body temperature, mm. and then the external environment has a water vapour pressure, um, mm. determined by the water content of the air and temperature. So um, there's a difference between the animal's water vapour pressure and the external water vapour pressure, and that's believed to be the driving force yeah. for water loss. So obviously if there's a big difference in water vapour pressure, the animal should lose lots of water, mm. and if there's a small difference in water vapour pressure, they should only lose a little bit of water.
0: So it should be highly predictable... Yes, based on thermodynamics, but it turns out it's not.
1: It's not. So instead of getting that nice relationship between mm. water loss and water vapour pressure difference, we're finding animals are keeping that passive water loss constant. So okay. they're not getting. So you're not, you're not seeing a decrease at high relative humidities, for example, and an increase at low relative humidities. It's staying constant. Right.
0: They're not obeying the laws of physics. Yes, is what you're which
1: immediately suggests that they're regulating, yeah. as opposed to just passively <laughs> conforming to their environment. Yeah.
0: And is this something that looks like all? Uh, mammals we're doing, or is it arid area things? <laughs>
1: By chance, we've actually measured a whole lot of arid habitat mm. marsupials um, because we discovered this accidentally doing some work just on looking at water loss, and then we were trying to correct for environmental water vapor pressure. Um, so we've discovered this occurs in um, little red colluta which are a hyper-arid marsupial. Mm-hmm. Um, we've found it in. Uh, Ash grey mice, which are sort of semi-arid, the population we were working on. Hmm. Brush-tailed possums do it, certainly at lower ambient temperatures. Um, And we've found recently the budgies um, will do it. So now we've got a bird that will do it. So we found it in marsupial mammals, placental mammals and a bird. Um, So part of this work is to look at how widespread it is.
0: It's funny, whenever I hear about these sort of things, my first thought sort of goes to, how didn't we know this yet? (laughs) If it's such a broad scale pattern across marsupials and placental mammals and birds...
1: Water loss is actually not as well studied. So a lot of people focus their research on body temperature regulation and energy. Mm -hmm. um, But very few people measure water loss, especially passive water loss. So we sort of really understand extreme temperatures when Mm. animals are really painting and sweating and doing things like that. But just their passive water loss, oh, it's just physical.
0: Um, Mm. People have
1: looked at arid mesic differences. But when you look at the data set for water loss compared to, say, the data set for basal metabolic rate, there's a much uh, fewer species that have been measured. Yeah, I guess
0: that's the danger of assuming that we know things, right? Yes. Yeah, you can... It's almost like urban myths. It just sort of gets spread around and assumed that we all understand it very well. And unless you actually look... Yes. You'll never know what we don't know. Yes, exactly. (laughs) So how do you actually study... Water loss. How do you measure how much water an animal's lost?
1: We use open flow respirometry, which is the same technique you use to measure an animal's resting metabolic rate. So we take an animal and we put it in an airtight chamber. Mm -hmm. We blow air through that chamber at a known flow rate, and we know the gas composition of the air going in. So we know the humidity of the air and the oxygen CO2 composition, and then we measure the gas composition of the air that comes out. So by difference, we can work out how much um, oxygen, CO2, and um, water.
0: So you stick them in a box?
1: Yes, we stick them in a box. Through it at a known temperature, and
0: <laughs> and is it is it an easy measurement to take? You can measure the humidity of air coming out. Yep, That's you a very simple can get electronic um, uh,
1: humidity probes that yeah. measure so theoretically it's it's straightforward there are a few complications you obviously have to use the right calculations and yeah. things like that and time is the biggest factor yeah. so your animal takes time to settle in the chamber so obviously you get an animal and put it in a new environment yeah. it's going to be a bit awake and active and looking around so you have to wait for it to calm down and relax and, and go to sleep so mm-hmm. that's probably the biggest hassle and water you've got to be particularly careful because water vapor is really sticky
0: so mm-hmm. it sticks
1: to the glass and the tubing and that in your chamber so it takes a longer time to wash out so you have to be a little bit more careful with making sure you have a high enough flow rate and that hmm. you wait long enough to measure your animals.
0: Okay, and I guess with this sort of research have people done it where they are pushing these animals to extremes?
1: Yep, As so you're saying they're doing research on these yeah, extremes. Yeah, so people yeah. have you know, looked at animals at high temperatures mm. at low temperatures, but we're really interested in just the passive water loss so yeah, you know, at, you know, normal you know, routine temperatures for them.
0: i feel a lot better doing that than sticking an animal in sort of a intentionally uncomfortable extreme environment <laughs> a particularly hot box or cold box
1: yeah i mean the the advantage of the way we do it is we plot the um, metabolic and water loss data for our animal continuously over time hmm. so we have a continuous record of their metabolic state so you okay, can keep so really a good a eye on how how they're going over yeah. time so you know exactly what their water loss and their metabolic rate is so yeah. even if you were doing the more extreme experiments you can take them out if they're looking Modern like they're treatment. really to struggle, struggle with them yeah, yeah. so mm.
0: hi then what's the next steps for figuring out what the the mechanism of Regulating this is?
1: We um, want to do some work looking at skin lipids. Um, Mm -hmm. So we want to expose our animals to different um, temperature humidity combinations and then look at their, their skin lipid response and the other bit that we're really interested in is looking at their expired air temperature which is really hard to measure non-invasively because we want all our animals to be resting and as soon as mm. you you know put a mask over your animal then you're obviously going to you know, stress it and then mm. you know it's going to not necessarily have a normal water loss rate anymore so if it's hyperventilating or something like that mm. so we want to look at a non-invasive way of measuring expired air temperature so we are going to look look at using a thermal camera to do nice. this so we can't measure the air temperature with a the thermal camera but we can measure the nasal passages we could um, we're looking at putting a mesh grid over the nostrils and then measuring the temperature of that okay. um, so that's the upcoming looking at the mechanism work
0: so, I mean you need animals with big nostrils <laughs>
1: well <laughs> we're going to focus on the birds to start off with because it's easier to glue mesh over their nostrils because they obviously don't have hands to interfere with that right. <laughs> um, so we'll start work with the birds with that and then and um, you can train mammals to accept those sorts of measurements mm-hmm. um, and then use the thermal camera.
0: So your field is, I guess, mammal physiology. How, how did you get into this field? Did you start off as a physiologist or a mammologist?
1: Um, yeah, I, I started off probably from the physiology aspect. So I did my honours and my PhD in comparative physiology. Mm-hmm. Um, and the thing I really like about it is you can apply this work to a whole range of different animals. So mm-hmm. I work on mammals and birds a lot. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, you can still apply this work to reptiles, amphibians, invertebrates mm. as well. So I really like that diversity yeah, that yeah. it provides. And you know, I work on mammals and birds because that's sort of where I've had the opportunities so far. Mm. Um, but that doesn't mean I don't also have an interest in other, well, pre- predominantly vertebrates, but yeah. yeah. You also go down the invertebrate road.
0: So you have, have you done invertebrate stuff? Or I've
1: supervised a-, a few student projects yeah. doing invertebrate work. Um, so I haven't published anything on inverts, but yeah, we've done a few honours projects.
0: Is that... Easier because there's less paperwork about putting invertebrates in boxes? Yes, <laughs>
1: there's certainly a lot less paperwork involved and you know things you can go and buy crickets from the pet shop and off you go. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, there's certainly um, a lot more that you can do mm. um, to invertebrates but also yeah, there's a huge amount of diversity there.
0: Yeah, yeah, of course. Um, I imagine that's something that's also an open book that not many people have worked on.
1: Yeah, mm. but then you're starting to also push the technology of doing it. It's much easier to measure metabolic rate of a large vertebrate because you get a bigger oxygen change. And mm. um, you know, people do measure metabolic rates of individual ants using flow-through respirometry, but <laughs> it's yeah, it's starting to push the, the yeah. limits of the technology. So it's certainly doable, but yeah, you need to obviously have the appropriate equipment.
0: Mm. And so whenever you, you said you started off doing this stuff in honours, so you finished your degree you start your owners project which is your first sort of real crack at putting your skills to use do you think that really decided the rest of your career from then on um, Yeah, yeah you know, I mean, I think you...
1: probably there was a third year project where we were looking at water loss from snails estivating and awake snails mm-hmm. and I remember putting snails in the fridge and measuring their water loss and beautiful data. it's like, this is what I want to do. I want to put animals in fridges and measure their water loss forevermore. <laughs> <laughs> and so I've sort of got, just gone into that area and I you know, really enjoy working on you know, a whole variety of mammals. Mm. So I went on black cockatoos for my honours work and I was fortunate enough to work on numbats for my PhD. That's great. <laughs> um, and yeah, so I've been putting animals in fridges and measuring their metabolic rate of water loss ever since.
0: Yeah. I mean, when you hear scientists talk about their their trajectories and why they work on what they're working on. It always seems very sort of linear and makes sense that you would work on these things. It probably didn't feel like that at the time, or is that just me? Um,
1: yeah, I think I was just fortunate enough to have the opportunities to do projects and work that I was really interested in. And, mm. and you know, I got into physiology because yeah, it gave me that diversity and the ability to do field work, lab work, mm-hmm. on a range of species, and, yeah, yeah just... Carried on,
0: <laughs> <laughs> and so were you a budding zoologist as a child then?
1: Yes, it's all I ever remember wanting to do. Oh,
0: really? And so you just followed the passion. So you just live in the dream now.
1: Yep. <laughs> Pretty much.
0: <laughs> so what? So what keeps you going then? Can't you just quit? You've done. You've done what you set out to do.
1: I guess at the end of the day, I can't think of another job I'd rather have. <laughs> so no job's perfect. There's yeah. always downsides to every job, but. If I sit there and think about, is there anything else I'd rather do? Yeah, I can't think of anything I'd rather do. So if you can say that about your job, that's pretty yeah, good. You're in a pretty
0: good spot. <laughs> <Yep>. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and you, you were here at the University of New England a while ago doing a postdoc.
1: Yes. Yes. Yeah. About twelve years ago, okay. I was fortunate enough to be a postdoc here. Mm-hmm. So um, I was working on temperature regulation in birds and mammals. Mm-hmm. Um, but I was only, it was a three-year postdoc, but after a year I was fortunate enough to get a permanent job back in Perth. So yeah, you're not going to turn down a permanent job. Yeah. So it was, a, it was a bit unfortunate that it came up after only a year. Mm. Um, it would have been nice if it had been sort of halfway through my third year. Yeah, you get <laughs> some
0: solid, solid roots
1: set in. and but, you know, when these opportunities come up, you yeah. obviously grab them.
0: I mean, that seems to be science, They're right? You, you go where the work is. Yes. I guess, yeah. yeah. Is How's that been for you? Is is that a wonderful opportunity or is that a?
1: have been incredibly fortunate. Mm -hmm. Um, I mean, my postdoc came up pretty much as soon as I finished my PhD and the selection Mm -hmm. criteria are pretty much the chapters in my thesis. So (laughs) I was really fortunate then. And then, as I said, um, my permanent job came up only after a year of postdoc. So Mm -hmm. yeah, I've been really, really fortunate that those opportunities have been there. So yeah, I've just gone from straight from one to the other.
0: Yeah, and you're obviously still finding ways of exploring and travelling and, and not staying still for yeah. too long. Yeah, I mean, a lot of the work
1: <laughs> I do is field-based. In the, Even the lab sort of components, we go in the field and catch the animals because obviously we want animals that are adapted to... Particular Mm -hmm. environment, so we want wild caught animals, uh, field fresh animals. So yes, that means we have to travel to where they are and do a fair bit of field work to to even catch them, even for the lab based components.
0: Mm -hmm. And you did some work in the states.
1: Yes, yes. Um, We an earlier project was looking at water loss. Um, of marsupials over a whole range of um, different environments Mm -hmm. Um, and we wanted to get as big a body mass, phylogenetic and environmental range so obviously one of the species we wanted to measure was the North American opossum so we went to um, the US to to do that
0: Mm. Is that because I mean are marsupials particularly interesting in terms of their physiology as opposed to placental mammals?
1: They're a really nice group to look at because we do get that um, um, we do get the um, mirroring of the, the different niches, mm. um, but in one phylogenetic group, mm. um, and we don't have to deal with you know, some of the, the more complicated groups. Um, like what? I <laughs> <laughs> measuring water loss and metabolic rate are some of the really big Mammals is obviously logistically difficult. <laughs> it's, it's achievable and it's doable, box, but it's, yeah, it's expensive and it's logistically yeah. difficult. So, marsupials, you know, we have a, a much more manageable range, but we still have those different niches to look mm. at.
0: And I guess it also have you know, nectar feeding marsupials and things that would have crazy physiologies, right?
1: Marsupials are really conservative okay. in terms of their physiology. So, you don't get a lot of the high end. Hmm. Physiologies that you would get um, for a lot of the placentals, so in terms
0: of like uh, metabolic rates. yes, and things.
1: yeah, yeah. Yep. So marsupials on average have a lower metabolic rate than placentals, okay. um, but there are placentals that are as low as marsupials. But you don't get the marsupials that are really pushing the higher. Mm. the higher limits, except for the honey possum, which seems to be the one exception, the one marsupial that does have a statistically higher metabolic rate. Why,
0: why, do we know why? They're generally lower? They're,
1: they're nectar, nectar, anything.
0: So. The marsupials in general?
1: Oh, it's just probably a phylogenetic constraint. Mm. So that's just how they ended up. So when they diverged from placentals, marsupials ended up with this lower mm. process.
0: So I should we should clarify for people listening, metabolic rate. What are we talking about?
1: <laughs> oh, okay. When we're talking about metabolic rate, we measure standard, well, basal metabolic rate that we mm. can use to compare between species. So basal metabolic rate's measured for an animal that's resting, not growing, not digesting food, mm. um, and is not thermoregulating, so is in a thermoneutral environment. Yeah. So that's a standard measure that we can then use to compare between different species. Yeah,
0: and we're actually measuring... I guess how much their cells are active? Yes, really you're measuring essentially
1: that. Well, we measure their oxygen consumption. You can measure their carbon dioxide production, okay. and compare that to heat loss yeah. if you want to. Um, and we were interested in the water loss, but we would measure water loss under the same standardized conditions so mm. that we could then compare water loss between species.
0: Yeah. Um, so, is, is water loss then a is this is a conservation concern? If we're facing things like climate change or changes to environments?
1: Yeah, probably not directly. I mean, mm-hmm. we can't say, well, we know the species' water loss, we can now conserve it. But yep. we certainly it's something we have to worry about, because, especially because water is probably a more immediate concern than energy is.
0: Okay. So you know, if you're
1: lost in the desert, you're going to die of dehydration mm-hmm. before you die of starvation. Um, so for animals, meeting their water budget is probably more important even than meeting their energy budgets. Mm-hmm. And so we really do need to understand how... Their water budgets are going to be determined, and it is I mean we certainly can show environmental effects on water loss, so it 's clearly a factor that is under selection and is mm. responding to different environmental pressures
0: so this might be a misguided question, but how does metabolic rent interact with sort of water loss i mean there's the the respiratory water loss which yes. I assume would come into play
1: yes I mean that's interesting and complicated in that when you metabolize you also produce water as metabolic water production okay so you're producing water but you're also losing water through evaporative water loss Mm. so one of the things we were really interested in looking at is the water economy of an animal so the relationship Mm. between how much water it's losing versus how much water it's making okay and is there some relationship between species between environment and size of the animal um with this ratio. So we can calculate what we call the point of relative water economy, which is Mm -hmm. the ambient temperature at which the animal is making the same amount of water that it's losing. So if you look at that ambient temperature, where Mm -hmm. they're sort of in water balance, if you like, um, and then compare that for arid versus mesic species, the arid species have a higher or better point of relative water economy than more mesic species. So it's another way of looking at how good animals are at conserving water.
0: This is really, it's, it's fundamental information on how animals actually Yeah, how they function. work in their yeah. environment, yeah.
1: <laughs>
0: <laughs> All right. Well, I should probably let you get back to looking at mammals in boxes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> <laughs> it has a very intense lab work while you're here by the signs of it.
1: Yes, we're, we're keeping pretty busy while we're here. So yeah. we've only got a, a short period away, so we need to get as many measurements as we've done. And we've you know, brought our equipment over and we've, by measuring um, marsupials, which we measure through the day in their rest phase, and measuring birds, which we measure at night in their rest phase, we oh, can keep okay. our systems going 24 hours.
0: <laughs> it's strange Scientists find themselves doing very strange things sometimes, like sitting up at two in the morning, watching a bird sleep. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, that's how you get good data. Right? Yes, yeah. yeah. <laughs> All right. So, well, if people want to hear more about your research, they can just go and check out the Curtin University website.
1: Yes, that's right.
0: And you are also organizing an upcoming congress
1: Yes, the International Mammal Congress is yes. going to be held in Perth in July, 9th to the 12th. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, we'd love to see we people there.
0: register, and what, what because, can people expect at the Congress?
1: Um, with all aspects of um, mammal research, mm-hmm. so anatomy, ecology, physiology, genetics... Um, biogeography so a whole lot of mammal researchers. so it's uh, every four years we have um, this main mammal meeting so it's Mm -hmm. an opportunity for mammalogists to get together and talk about It's international
0: so people from all over the world yes yep. do we have an estimate on delegate numbers I imagine this would be pretty huge
1: yeah probably about 800 Um, but as I said people can register right up until the day so
0: (laughs) it's um, not like cash at the door but go (laughs) online and register (laughs) Alright, well I'll let you get back to it.
1: Okay, thank you for having me. <laughs> Thanks for coming on.
0: And thank you guys for listening. If you want to hear more podcasts, you can subscribe on all iTunes or on all podcast apps. Uh, you can follow us on Twitter with the handle at In-Situ Science, and like our Facebook page or check out our website, InSituScience.com. Thanks for listening and I'll see you next time.